It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Brett Beveridge. Brett is a serial entrepreneur who thrives on building businesses from the ground up and prides himself on being at the forefront of technology. Since founding the Revenue Optimization Companies, or T-Rock, Brett has helped propel the parent company of four brands and an international division to become a leader in the wireless, electronic software, and retail industry space. Brett is an alum of the University of Miami and sits on the university's President's Council. Brett Beveridge, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here today with you. Great to have you here too. And Brett, we'd like to kind of get started to hear a little bit about the early years. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you know what your early family life was like. Sure. Be happy to do that. So um, I'm a South Florida native. I was born and raised here in Miami. And nice. Grew up in kind of a middle-class lifestyle before cell phones and before the internet and before computers. So we really enjoyed a lot of being around friends and being outside all the time. And be some quiet. Right, right. Well, we found our, our ways to find adventures and, you know, swimming in canals and hanging out in the woods and playing lots of fun games when, in my youth. But uh, it was a very, very pleasurable upbringing. And, uh, you know, I miss it. Brothers and sisters uh, growing up? Sure. I have one brother. Uh-huh. He's, he's older than I. And uh, we hung out a lot together. But... Um, but he had a similar feeling about our, our upbringing as well. Yeah. Tell me about your parents. Professionals, stay-at-home, what were their uh Sure. My jobs? mother stayed, was a work at, stay-at-home mom, and my father had an early entrepreneurial stint in the 50s. He was with IBM out of college and went on on his own to try an entrepreneurial venture that was a little bit before his time. So we ended up um, as an Allstate insurance agent selling insurance for the majority of his career. What kind of influence do they have on your growing up? You know, any early lessons you remember back in those single digit years? Yeah, my father, I didn't recognize how much of an influence he had on my life. And I still, to this day, start to connect the dots with the type of influence he had on my life. He was a very um, supportive father. He always would say that we were going to do better than he did, that we're smarter than he ever was, when in fact he was a pretty damn smart guy in his own right. Uh, he, he taught us how to respect elders, but that we also need to be confident in who we are. And in fact, I remember several occasions where we would be in the neighborhood and if something, we got in any kind of trouble at all, he would, would say, just tell 
those parents to speak to me directly. So that it gave me a lot of confidence that I was absolutely going to respect the elder. Yeah, but he had my back at all times. So he taught me how to be independent, proud, and don't rely too much on others if you want to get what you want out of life. Nice. And what about mom? Mom was was fantastic. Uh, she she is more conservative than my father. My father was more of an optimist, and my mother was more of a get a stable hourly job and keep that job for 40 years and you'll make me a very happy mother. <laughs> a good balance between the two, right? Kind of had the entrepreneurial side and the uh, steady state side. Any other early influencers in your life, you know, coaches, teachers, people you remember from those early years? Yeah. I mean, I think all of the above, I, I really enjoyed people. So my friends obviously would influence me. Uh, I had a strong desire to, I was on a pretty strict allowance uh, so I got pretty much lunch money, and that was what I was able to to show as my allowance for the week. So I, at an early age, wanted to do other things to generate some cash so that I could buy some of the things that I wanted to buy. But uh, but very you know very uh, I would say very average uh, upbringing when it comes to to how and and you know what I was dealing with as a kid. Middle class, total middle class. Yeah. 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 Were you a good student, Brett? You know, I, I, it wasn't really hard for me to go through school. I was able to get by, unlike today, when from very early ages, kids are put under tremendous crazy, pressure to crazy. do well. It really is crazy. I have three daughters, and, and uh, having and seeing them go through that, that journey was, uh, was, was, was crazy. But are they from, uh, college age now or still in high school, or where, where are they in their path? I, I actually have one that, that graduated from Florida State and got her master's at University of Miami, and now she is a practicing mental health counselor. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. And I, my middle daughter went to USC, graduated in May of last year, and she is, uh, has her dream to be uh, an actress. Nice. So she's living in LA, pursuing that dream. And then my youngest daughter is 18, has just graduated high school, and she's on her way to UT Austin for her college career. So you just recently gone through the whole college app uh, process and how brutal that is. It really is brutal. I mean, the number of the tens of thousands of students that apply for seven for a thousand openings is just it's just crazy. Yeah, our daughter went through that last year, and I am so glad she's our youngest because I don't think I could live through it again. <laughs> <laughs> right, I hear you. I hear you. So um, back to kind of your school times. Uh, anything that was you know kind of interesting outside of class? You know, sports, music, theater. What what other types of things were you involved with extracurricularly? Well, as in in high school, I really I was an athletic guy, and I loved uh, athletic sports. However, my parents were. were pretty strict about that. They did not fast forward to today, what you're seeing happening in the NFL and various sports. I think they were nervous and concerned that, you know, I would have injuries that I would live with for the rest of my life. So I did play some Pop Warner ball and I wrestled in high school, but uh, most of my time was spent basically working. I had tons of outside jobs, uh, you know, one at a time, of course, but I uh, mowed yards at nine years old to earn extra cash. And then I I bus tables and was a short order cook and and was a cashier in a grocery store and waited and bus tables. That's until right. I went to so, college. so first yeah. job was lawn mowing, or did you do the the ubiquitous paper route as well as an early uh, <laughs> as an early kid? No, I didn't do the paper route. I was I, again. I was nine years old when I started. A, That's kind of a young. lawn route. Yeah. A lawn route is right. what I had. <laughs> right. And lawn grows, uh, grass grows fast in Florida, right? That's a, every that's a week. good profession. Yeah, every week. Cool. And was the spending money, you know, kind of yours to keep? Did mom and dad encourage you to save, you know, give away charitably? What? How did that kind of work for you at home? That's a great question. Uh, 
so the answer is my dad had my brother and I read a book that I highly recommend that is a very simple book to understand, and it's for all ages, and it's called The Richest Man in Babylon. Oh, yes, I have. Yes, in fact, read it as well. Yeah. It's a super book with a very simple principle of save 10% of whatever you earn and pay yourself first. So he did absolutely ask us or kind of didn't really have the option to not read it (laughs) one summer, but that has stuck with me, and I recommend that book to all ages to this day. What were some of the key memories or or things that you recall from that book other than the 10% rule? Uh, you know, you, you just, just have to pay yourself first. And if you, you know, the, the, the beauty of compounding interest and compounding principle over a long period of time and the framework around how you can set yourself up so that you don't, you don't penetrate that life savings bucket and you end up living within your means because you know that you have basically 10% less to live on than you would have otherwise. So it it just gives you general disciplines around respecting money and respecting compounding interest, but also how to live within your, your means. Awesome. And what did you uh, typically spend your, uh, the the money that was discretionary, I guess, over those years, did you have certain hobbies or things that you, uh, you know, indulge yourself with growing up in Florida? Uh, well, I did. I mean, I, again, I was outside all the time, but w- there was one kind of phase uh, down here in South Florida and probably throughout the United States in the 70s, which was roller skating and roller skating rinks. So my nine-year-old uh, income through 13 was spent on buying really great <laughs> kangaroo skin, blue spruce wheel, roller skates, speed skates that I could compete in speed skating at the, at the local roller rink. <laughs> so you had a roller rink. Oh, that's cool. So it wasn't just outside. Right. Yeah. Right. I suppose given the probably the conditions down there, particularly during the summer, you'd wanted to be inside an air-conditioned space. No, for sure. <laughs> and we're coming upon those times right yeah, now exactly. in May, June, and July. Exactly. Yeah. So um, jobs in, in, in college, did you also have, you know, have to work while you're going to school? Was tuition kind of something you saved for? Mom and dad supported you, financial aid? How did you kind of make college work? So the, I worked through high school and my dad asked me to save as much money as I could in the semester, in the period between graduation of high school and my first year of college. So I saved as much as I could and he matched that. And he did pay my tuition and books and living expenses for year number one. Um, year number two through six, by the way, for a four-year degree. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see, how's the math work on that? Oh, I know how that works. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, 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 I had moved out. I went away to school for one year. I graduated high school without even applying to college. I don't know what I was thinking. I ended up going to the community college up in Tallahassee because that's my girlfriend was at Florida State up there at the time. So I went there my first year and then came back to Miami and and worked my way through, um, you know, putting myself through school and my living expenses. So yes, I was bartending, I was waiting tables, I was bouncing, I was sometimes picking papaya in the fields <laughs> to, to supplement <laughs> my income. Uh, but my real, the, the best job I actually ever had that taught me the most was uh, working in the health club industry. While I was going to school full time, I started as a salesperson and moved my way up into an assistant manager and then, and then a, a, um, a center manager with a fairly large sales team and a pretty high quota to hit. And that taught me a lot about how to sell. It taught me a lot about how to manage at an early age. It was very lucrative, so I was able to, you know, get some footing under me, and and uh, and it was 
fantastic experience while I was still in college. Was was college kind of optional for you? It sounds like, you know, dad helped with the beginning years, but it was kind of like, hey, if you want to do this, uh, you've got to invest in it. Was it one of those kind of conversations? Yeah. I mean, the expectation and the hope and the prayers were that, that I would make would. it through college. <laughs> dad dad and, did. did. Did mom have a degree as well? Mom did not. Mom actually worked at the University of Miami where I went to school, which did afford me some some nice discounts on tuition. Oh, that's cool. Um, and she took a lot of classes, but never got a formal degree. My father did also go to University of Miami, as did my brother okay. and my wife, by the way. All of us graduated <laughs> from there. Big alum. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, it, it came to a point where, I, you know, it, it was, I was in the early years of college, I was less than focused. I mean, I was, it was about, you know, having fun and partying, to be, to be honest with you. Figuring and it out. Yeah. Once I got that job at Scandinavian and started to to understand what life was about and um, knew that I needed to get focused and real, I decided to get the degree. I wanted the piece of paper, even though I was working fifty hours a week. I still knew I needed to get that diploma. And how did you so pick did. the How did you pick the major or the degree that you chose? You know, I'm I'm a I'm a extroverted person just by nature, and uh, marketing appealed to me. Marketing was easy for me with a business uh, minor. So uh, I picked marketing for that reason and, and it was easy for me to get through that way. Easier anyway. And so uh, once you got to Miami, finished up your degree, what was that first job you took right out of college? Well, my first career while I was in college, I started my first business, which was called Let's Talk Cellular and Wireless. In fact, the original company name was uh, was called Celco Cellular, a division of Cellular Communications Network in uh, Inc. And our slogan was, we're mobile because you are. Well, we knew we needed to sound big, hence the name, but uh, we were mobile because you are, because that we didn't have an office. We had a van that we customized <laughs> and I love we'd it. run around Miami and we would drive to parking lots of banks and shopping centers, anywhere where there was traffic and whip out our uh, demo mobile cellular phones, which at the time was going to be a fantastic and big craze. Right. And we, um, we saw early success and ended up growing that company through you know, through gas station card funding and um, angel <laughs> investing and bank debt and eventual venture capital and took that company public and, and, and eventually sold that to Nextel. We had about 300 stores across the country and over a thousand employees when we, when we sold it. So it was a re primarily a retail operation of, of, of cellular phones. Specialty retailer, Special correct. Retail. Yeah, and then and then it's, and, and how long were you involved in that venture until you sold it? Started that in February of 1989, and we took it public in 1997 with Merrill Lynch and Smith Barney, and then sold it in like 2000, um, 2001 to Nextel Communications. Right in between the, the fall. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, in in between that time, after we took it public, I left to go start a separate dot com company out in Silicon Valley. So I would travel every Monday morning to San Francisco and take the red eye back every Friday night. And we raised a lot of money for that entity, which eventually became the, the leader in the, in the online wireless phone sales. Yeah. Right. Gosh, cool. And so um, tell us about some of the you know, early leadership responsibility. You, you obviously were hiring people. And did you have a partner in that business? In the first business I did, yeah. Someone I met in college in one of my classes and, and recruited him to come work for me at the, at the health club that I was managing. And from there, he left and went to go sell cell phones. And we collaborated and said, let's, let's go do this. Yeah. So you went from kind of just the two of you to how many employees before you actually sold or went public? Uh, we had about 1,400 employees. We were in 34 states in Puerto Rico. 
um, we were doing close to $300 million in revenue with that first company. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, some of the early management experiences, maybe you can share a little bit about that because you were kind of a first time manager, right? Through that role. Yeah, I, I, I definitely was. I mean, Scandinavian was my first kind of experience managing a team of 15, 15 or so people. But, and what I learned from that translated very easily into, you know, the, the next career, which was really starting from scratch and then growing it to be a larger company. But I was always the youngest guy in the room at the time. Now I'm always the oldest guy in the room. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how chronology kind of catches up with you after a while. It's true. But, (laughs) but I will tell you that just, if you perform age is invisible, it really is invisible. And if you are leading the way and leading by example, and you are absolutely respecting your team around you and you're listening to what they have to say and their opinions, you understand what motivates them. And you treat them with a whole bunch of respect and know that there's a unified goal that you have to hit. Um, that's has been my formula and my style over the years. And I've seen some success with it. Do you think having a passion about what you do makes a difference a- as a leader? You know, absolutely I do. I mean, I never set out to sell cell phones. And it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I, I just have to sell cell phones. But I, you know, you have to also keep an open mind and find passion in what you do. Absolutely loving what you do that you hear everyone say is is mission critical. When you are involved with something like that, you are not forced to go to work. You are excited to think about next steps. You're excited to grow and to be the best that you can be. So you absolutely have to love what you're doing in order to, to find real success and happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment long-term. Yeah, absolutely. So, gosh, you really haven't had a boss, right? Or or back in those early days of Scandinavian, I guess you did, correct? Yeah, her name is Maria Beveridge. <laughs> okay, got that right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tell us well, about some of the lessons that Maria has told you over well, the years. <laughs> well, that, that might be a, a different kind of podcast. We might be a, you know, on a mental counseling uh, podcast of some sort. No, kidding. But um, has she been a partner though with uh, you in some of these businesses? She's she's been she's not a physical partner, but she's absolutely uh, thankfully chosen to be a work at home. I mean, a stay at home mom as well, which afforded me the ability to be on the road as much as I have been and have us kind of divide and conquer and and um, be able to make the life that we're trying to lead. But back to your question around no boss. I mean, yes, I'm my own boss and I have been my own boss, but you definitely have constituencies out there that are influencing what you're doing. When you're a public company. Stakeholders, board members. Absolutely. Banks, stakeholders, board members, shareholders, uh, employees uh, are my boss as well. I mean, I'm here to serve them and make sure I'm giving them all the resources and everything that they possibly can need to be successful and allowing them to be accountable and feel ownership in what they're doing. So you always have, there are all bosses everywhere. It just is how you how you embrace each of those constituencies. Well, talk to us a little bit, Brett, about the, particularly the concept of the stakeholder, the board, the bankers, you know, what did you learn from those relationships, particularly in terms of managing them? You know, many of our listeners do have entrepreneurial interests. So we've spoken to a number of uh, entrepreneurs, but we've never really kind of pursued that area. So I'd love to hear your feedback on, you know, how do you work with those types of folks who, you know, have a stake in what you do, um, both either financially or or, you know, maybe ethically, morally, et cetera? Well, for internal purposes, you need to have a very strong culture when you're dealing with your employees. And, and I don't know if you want to get into that now or later, but 
culture is absolutely mission critical, and I and I would love to sh- expand on that at some point. Uh, but each each you know all those different constituencies, you're kind of in a goldfish bowl, particularly when you are in a public company. But communication is the overriding key to all those different constituencies. You absolutely have to over communicate, restate what it is that you're trying to accomplish. People have you know distractions, so uh, them being very clear on what the objective is. Making sure you're communicating not only in the bad times when you have to communicate, but in the in the good times. You want your bankers, you want your board members, you want your shareholders to have a really good view of what you're doing right, and 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 when you encounter challenges, that you are not hiding those challenges or sugarcoating those challenges, particularly with banks. Um, Transparency. Banks, Absolute transparency. Meet with your banks every quarter at worst case scenario. Share what you plan to have happen and what actually happened so that when you do have a challenging time, they're not new to your business. They trust you, which is absolute key, is trust amongst all those different constituencies. And you also don't want the bank to say at the end of the year when you're looking for your next round of funding to say, well, if you just would have done this last year, we could have approved you. So I remove that from the conversation. I say, look, I'm going to come to you looking for more money at the end of the year. Tell me now what we need to do so that you don't say, <laughs> if you would have done this, you would have gotten that Very extra proactive. Huh? Proactive. Yeah. Good, yeah. good point. And, and uh, thinking about a board, did you actually build a board with that first company then? You had to, of, of course, prior to going public and sure had one afterwards. And it, was it mostly composed of investors? Was it friends and family, mentors? How did you go about selecting the folks that provided that kind of advice and counsel? It's another great question. Uh, so an early investor, our first angel investor, uh, was a fantastic seasoned, talented business person. So we, we insisted that he be on our board. My partner and I were on the board. Our venture capital investor obviously had seats on the board consistent with their ownership in the company at various stages of their investment. And then we had a, a one or two outside board members that brought different disciplines to the board that we needed to complement and round out our strategy and our board as well as our, our management team. So we would mutually agree on those incremental board members as they came in. Got it. Got it. Cool. And so um, maybe just giving us a little bit of chronology as it relates to your career, you sold the company, uh, it went public, obviously you sold it and did, uh, and I love the name, by the way, we talked about this part of the podcast, T-Rock, what a, what a wonderful name, <laughs> the revenue optimization companies. Now, did that evolve out? Was that something you started up following or was there something in between? So when we, when, we, when we sold the public company to Nextel, um, I was reluctant to join. So I stayed on as a consultant, but, but eventually joined the company to help them grow the number of locations that they bought from us. In fact, they bought you know, a little over 200 locations of our 300. The rest were sold to AT&T and others. And, and we this grew is early that, 2000, right? 2000, 2001? 2000, 2001. We grew that base. We opened 800 additional stores in three years. Uh, and then I also ran the national retail division, which were relationships with the big box retailers like Best Buy and Walmart and Target and, and back then CompUSA and others. So when Nextel sold to Sprint, I was offered a position. But uh, by that time, I was so eager to get back into the entrepreneurial world that I took a package and, and, and eventually consulted with Sprint Nextel to help them integrate the companies. 
But that's when I had the idea to start what now has become T-Rock. And it started with a company called The Retail Outsource, T-R-O. And, <laughs> and, and we um, and, and eventually grew to T-Rock because it was the retail outsource companies. And then we said, you know what, that, that, that's not really what we do. And so it, that evolved into the revenue optimization companies. But we like to just be known as, as T-Rock for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, but um, but I, you know, I, did, I noticed that wherever there was technology involved with, at retail, whenever customers were trying to buy technology at retail, big box retailers and carriers and others were really not good at doing it at all. If you walk into, uh, you can think of the big box retailer, they're really good at selling toothpaste and toilet paper, commodity type items, but they're not good at prescribing solutions that help a customer identify a phone or the accessories or the rate plans and make sure that they have a working device when they leave and they understand their bill when it comes and being able to deal with personal information and all of that. So that's what started the retail outsource. And our first uh, project was for the Home Depot as they were trying to expand uh, their brand from just selling kind of tools and deck boards and hammers and nails to how can technology make people's lives better, smarter, faster. So that was our first project, and it kind of evolved from there, and the number of offerings and companies that we have included under the T-Rock umbrella evolved as well. And, and privately owned in planning to stay that way, or is this another company you're building for an eventual uh, IPO or, or perhaps sale? You know, the, the options are open. Uh, it, it is privately held today. There are no outside investors at all, and that's, that's intentional. Uh, we are obviously approached often, especially in today's world where there's lots of money on the sideline for investment. <laughs> Way too much money chasing too few opportunities, too few no, good right. opportunities anyway, right? Yeah, you're right. But we, um, we, we have been able to grow extremely rapidly without having to bring in outside investors. We want to stay focused. We want to keep to our plan. And sometimes bringing in outside investment can derail, you know, derail plans. So it's becoming meaningful enough now. And over the next year or two, that uh, as we're cementing our um, our go-to-market strategies and, and growing more rapidly, that uh, an investment in the future is on the table. Awesome. And uh, solely owned, or do you have a partner also in this business? How are you structured? No, I own a hundred percent of the company, and and you know that that's an interesting topic, just because if you own a hundred percent of the company, how are you manage motivating your your top rank leadership and middle leadership? When you are a private company, owning stock in it or stock option in it, stock options in it doesn't really matter. It just becomes kind of a distraction. It's not real. On paper, it might sound good, but in reality, it doesn't do any good until there's some type of, of uh, event, correct? So what I do now is we build budgets and, and share profits so that every year they're able to enjoy, you know, as an entrepreneur does, uh, when you're doing well and they, they are sad, like I am sad when we don't do well. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you're aligned in what you're doing. Obviously, if there becomes some kind of liquidity event, that is when you would allow them to be vested based on their time and performance and level and, and take out some, some ownership nice, at that point. Nice structure. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier, because we do want to talk on it. And that's kind of your thoughts around building a company culture and the importance of that. You know, every company has a culture, as you know. And you deal with this on a daily basis, and you talk to a lot of executives and, and people who are coming from many different environments. So there is a corporate culture, whether you like it or not. I have always felt that I've had a similar corporate culture than to what we have today, but it was never written. It was almost unconscious, right? It was almost based on actions 
and based on treatment than it was formal. With this set of companies, T-Rock, we are religious, and I don't mean in a church or cult type of way, but we're religious about having written cultural values and mission and how statement, we value that. statements, value statements. How do you, how do you, what's that look like for you? So, uh, so the, these, I'll just name the, the value statements quickly and we can go into them if you like or not. But uh, the first is be an entrepreneur every day. We want our people to think out of the box. We want them to think about how they can solve problems that seem impossible. We want to challenge the status quo so they're not doing things just because they're told to, even though they think they're not the right thing to do or the smart thing to do. So be an entrepreneur every day. Um, we want you to embrace change and embrace learning. There's no such thing as autopilot. You can't set it and forget it anywhere, but particularly in our world. Make honesty and integrity win every time, every day. All of our employees, we have, will have four to 5,000 W-2 employees over the next couple of months as we finish the completion of one of our expansions. And they are facing situations every day where, where they need to choose honesty and integrity. So we, it's a non-negotiable. It's the cornerstone of everything we do. They see decisions and choices being made every day that validate and back that up. Full transparency. Are, are you kind of a, what they call an open book organization as well? People have an opportunity to kind of know how you're doing financially and share that yeah, with we them? Have, we have quarterly all-hands meetings that are broadcast. And in those meetings, we give updates on where we stand against budget and where what our challenges are, what our successes are, what's what's coming down the road for them. Uh, and you know they the attendance on those things you have to you have to really make them entertaining uh, our large the lion's share of our employees are millennials and so we're we're which we can talk about as well we absolutely embraced that and how can we best communicate with how they like to be spoken with and communicated with so yeah we have how many total employees now across all the companies both domestic and international um, let's let's just say by October it'll be a little over five thousand. And that's, you know, that the bigger it gets, the harder it is to kind of keep that culture in check. Don't you agree? Couldn't agree more. One of the, one of the non-negotiables for me is avoiding politics and avoiding bureaucracy and avoiding silos at all costs. We absolutely have all come from environments where all of those ingredients are there. And, you know, we can choose because we're a private company and because we have, you know, leadership that, that doesn't want that sort of behavior or that sort of morale in the office to choose not to be siloed or to have politics in the business. So we're absolutely maniacal about keeping that out of the business. You, know, you said that you have a lot of millennials and you know everyone knows how hard it is to attract, let alone retain them. But what would you say is kind of the big wow about T-Rock and, and what is it that you do that keeps it that way? I would tell you that we are a a company that promotes from within mm -hmm. anytime and anywhere that we can. Right. So we love, and I think we did this over 300 times, 300 internal promotions last year, and it'll be over a thousand internal promotions this year. Fantastic. The only reason we don't exclusively promote from within is when we just don't have enough bodies where we're hiring and hiring and hiring. So we have to bring in people from the outside to help support our programs. We are a performance-based business. So that's, that's pillar number two. We have to absolutely perform. And those who, who are putting themselves in a position to be promoted through being a, you know, an excellent team member and meeting their minimum requirements for employment, like showing up on time and being in uniform and, 
and and producing at least uh, you know a, a minimum level and being a certain amount of time with us will allow them to be promoted. Uh, and that's based on performance. And the third is we amaze our customers, which by the way is also one of our core values that we didn't get to. We are absolutely obsessed and cherish our relationships with the types of companies that are customers of ours. So we do everything in our power to give them more than they expect and to amaze them as well as their customers. So, you know, you've uh, been in business now, what, seven, seven, eight years? Tell me again when T-Rock was originally uh, founded. When TRO was founded. was founded, I guess, right? Because it's evolved. Yeah, t- 2007, 2007, January 2007. So about 10, 10, 11 years. You know, you've you've obviously had people come and go over the years. What, what is it that you think, uh, you know, is the fact that 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 keeps people there? You know, in other words, what's kind of that, um, that area about your culture that, uh, um, you know, really retains and, and keeps people coming back or staying with you? Uh, and it is both, by the way. We have people that, that come to us, stay with us, and then leave and do come back. We are not. We are. We are um, really open about that. By the way, particularly when a lot of these employees that we're bringing on are entry level or first time employees. So we understand that that and embrace and want them to understand and embrace the fact that they're going to come in here and whatever they give us, we're going to give them more in return. So if they put in the effort and they put their hearts into it, we're going to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to make them better people better, not just better salespeople or better managers, but just better people. So when they do go to their next career, we're not, you know, we're not upset about that. We're, we're congratulatory about that and want them to feel that this was a great experience and that it helped build their foundation to go off and do other things. And that, by the way, makes them want to come back when they go out into the real world and they see that it's not as open and not as entrepreneurial and not as as people-driven as we are, and they end up coming back for that. I'll tell you another way to deal with millennials, and I, I love this, is reverse mentoring. So, you know, you ask, how do I manage? Um, we can get into that, but reverse mentoring is, is, is a cornerstone of my style. Understanding and listening to the various, you know, people that are working with you at all ages and, and shapes and sizes allows you to learn a lot more. So I don't know at all by far. I'm learning every single day that having different genders and demographics and ages and all of that, um, you know, spend time with me and, and teach me really helps us with shortcuts in the future on how to be relevant and how to attract the right people and perform well. I like that, Brett. It's uh almost like humility or, or vulnerability, right? You know, you're, you're in a position where you say, look, I don't know everything. I don't need to be the smartest man in the room. Um, what can you tell me about what you know? Is that kind of the approach you take? A- absolutely. And, 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 you know, that, that absolutely, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not a me higher than you. We don't level. We don't like leveling. We don't like the word leveling. Everyone has a highest and best use. And Mine is to do one thing, and the finance department's highest and best use is to make sure that we have accurate reporting, and the marketing's highest and best use is to make sure we're promoting our business and IT, et cetera, recruiting through the front lines. And, and we embrace whether you are on the front lines, which is where the register is and which, which pays the bills, all the way through to my office. You know, we're treated, we're treating each other with lots of respect 
and lots of and open open ears and and listening. Kind of goes back to some of that servant leadership you were talking about earlier as well. I hope so. I hope that's I hope that's how our people feel. I I think they do. You said you're doing a lot of hiring. What do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? So again, it depends on the role, but uh, but absolutely wide eyes, white teeth, you know, smiles, seeing <laughs> seeing the whites of the teeth, um, energetic, um, ambitious, want to to move in the world, want to make a difference, want want to rule the world in some cases. Uh, I love it when people say they want my job one day, and and you know, we get into details on how. How, how do they feel like they can do that? But it's more around attitude, energy, optimism, and ambition. Do you get involved in a lot of the interviewing uh, beyond, obviously, direct reports? I don't get involved at the frontline level. Uh, I'm very in tune with how many people we have. By the way, we'll have close to 60 recruiters uh, full-time, um, well, between full-time and some contract base over the next couple of weeks. Internal? So well, we have about, we'll have about 45 internal and 15 external that we engage regularly that know our company well so that we can ebb and flow as projects, um, as new additional projects come. So, but I'm very in tune with um, and invest lots of dollars into personality indexing and, and identifying who our A, B, and C players are. Uh, we just engaged a company now that I'm really excited about. It was well into the six-figure investment to use facial recognition and voice recognition so that you, when you're video interviewing people, you can truly understand based on their expressions, based on their eyes, based on their voice tones, um, you know, how they would fit in your organization. Level so, of intensity and, and correct. fit, et cetera. Yeah, cool. I learn the most when I'm in the field and I'm visiting our projects and I'm speaking one-on-one -on -one to the front lines and, and the middle management. That's how I get the most out of my visits and, and I'm able to help influence giving them additional resources that they need to, to perform. Now, you said you have a pretty flat organization, but do you have kind of a, uh, at least an executive team kind of structure where you've got five or six direct reports or how do you kind of, you know, manage uh, the various brands and operations you have uh, from your, from your desk? First, we talked about the three pillars of performance-based and, um, uh, you know, those three categories of amazing our customers, et cetera. Our four kind of operational pillars are one, stay lean, stay flat. We want to stay close to the business and make sure we understand what's happening and not have layers that are unnecessary. Two is we want to invest in technology heavily so that we can stay flat. So we're always investing in technology solutions that help us automate processes and gain more insights and business intelligence as to what's happening in the field. And the third is invest in people. So we, we invest heavily in training and development and and providing benefits that our employees can enjoy uh, that, that makes them want to, again, to your point earlier, stay. Well, Brett Brothers, you've been very, very uh, generous with your time. We appreciate that. We've got one question we always ask all our CEOs, and you know, that's kind of what career and life advice would you give to someone that's you know, got their eyes on the corner office or, you know, like you, wants to be an entrepreneur and build their own company? Yeah, I, you know, I, would, I think we talked a little bit about this earlier, but it's absolutely to to find something that you love. You have to make a decision early on. You have, to, you have to ask yourself what you really, really want out of life first. Whether you are entering the workforce, whether you might have five or 10 years experience, 
it might be you might be in your mid 30s or early 40s and have 10 or 15 years with a traditional corporation or you might be retired and and looking to see what's next for your next chapter of your life but i will tell you particularly for the younger constituency you have to understand what you want and understand how you're going to get what you want it's it's a tough road to be an entrepreneur it is it is uncertain. You're going to have people telling you what not to do, um, what that, that you can't do things, that you're crazy to lead leave a, a stable job or to to choose an entrepreneurial lifestyle over a stable lifestyle. But I will tell you that there is no better feeling than than starting something from scratch and gaining momentum with a team of people around you that believe in the same purpose and goal you do. And that together you're building something special, something that is solving a problem, something that's changing the world. So um, if you if you if you choose that, just just understand that you're going to have some uncertainty along the way. But you abs- if I can do it, a guy that lived in a trailer with no hot water, that had to use the shower next door that had that had hot water, <laughs> uh, and turn that into a a stream of fairly successful companies over time, then absolutely the people out there can do it. They just have to embrace it and and go for it. Well, Brett, thank you again for your time. Uh, Best of luck as you continue to grow T-Rock globally. And uh, we look forward to maybe having a future podcast to hear about your future growth and development. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.